Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Fumble. Darren, this one is quite unique because we have a very, very special guest. We've had guests in the past. We've uh, we've picked them up, we've shouted them out, and they've come on. They've been very kind enough to come on to The Fumble, but this one is very special because we are about to chat to the quarterback of the 1985 Super Bowl-winning Chicago Bears. Darren, you introduce him, and then you start by telling us why Jim McMahon is so important to us. Well, it's astonishing, isn't it? That you know, I was I was sat there first and foremost, Vern. I'm always excited to be in your, your yours and Simon's company to do the fun. <laughs> <clears throat> Let me just get that straight. But tonight, I am particularly excited. So I was sat there on Sunday, and I don't know why it was, but I was flicking through social media, and I happened to be on Jim McMahon's Twitter page, and on that Twitter page, there was an email address. And it was it's for bookings, basically. If you want to if you want to book Jim to do something, you, you, you go on the email address, you send the email in, and he decides whether he wants to do it or not. So I thought, just on the off chance, why not send him an email to tell him about the fumble, tell him about us, tell him why we do it, you know, tell him that we don't we don't do it to make any money, we do it because we love the game and we're trying to help it grow in the UK and, and do our bit if we can. And I kind of mentioned, you know, what that team means to a large generation of NFL fans in the UK, including you and I. That that was the, the era that we got into it, and we love it. And that 85 Bears team is the one that really resonates with us and the whole American Bowl in 86 and all that kind of thing. And I tell you what, within 90 minutes to two hours, I'd had an email back personally from Jim McMahon to say, <laughs> that's mad, yeah. So when your inbox tings and it says Jim McMahon, I'm thinking, hang on a minute. So... Um, It said, basically, like everybody else in the world, he said, well, as it happens, I'm stuck in the house. We're all battling coronavirus. We're all in lockdown. Um, I've got nothing else to do. What day do you want me? So I obviously communicated that to you boys. You you guys couldn't believe it, that that he'd emailed back and all that kind of thing. So here we are. And he was only too pleased to do it. Um... The only thing that he doesn't know at this stage is how long we're planning on keeping him <laughs> because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't specify, my friend. I didn't specify. So I'm just really excited. If there's one NFL player that I could speak to and I've always wanted to speak to and I've been fortunate enough to speak to some really big current players and past players, legends, Hall of Famers, the one person that was always on the bucket list is the fellow we're going to talk to for this podcast, Jim McMahon. It's, it's, it's huge. And I, I would say that when I was 13, 14, which I was at the time of the 85 Bears, he was at that stage probably my sporting hero. So there you go. He was kind of the first ever sporting hero of ours that also had a visual signature, had an attitude that was an attitude from outside of the game. He didn't Vernon, really... stop re- there, stop there, stop there. One second, right? So I've been absolutely bricking it all day, right? Because I'm thinking we could get right to the 
last minute. So I emailed him about half an hour ago and said, listen, Jim, we're really looking forward to this. Just checking you're okay. Simon, the producer, will ring you. And he's just emailed back. So we know he's coming on. <laughs> he's emailed back, yes, looking forward to it. So we know it's happening. So I can stop panicking. I've been like a cat on hot bricks all day. But I can now stop panicking. Jim's responded. He's definitely coming on. That is so funny. It, it, Darren, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think I've ever seen you or heard you be this excited. Ever, like We've been to Super Bowls together. We, yeah. we, we've been to all the Wembley games. We went to the first Tottenham game together. And this is the first time that I, <laughs> I've experienced <laughs> this Darren Fletcher, the yeah, childlike I, Darren yeah. Fletcher. I, I would describe myself in the finest northern way as being totally giddy at this time. I am absolutely giddy. You well, were, though, when I called you. You were when yeah. I called you to tell you. Because, as I was saying before, Jim emailed back to confirm that he's coming on. He he transcended the NFL because he had an attitude. He had a personality. He, he was different. He had the headband. You know, he turned up on his first day at the Chicago Bears swilling a cold beer. Because he felt that when he was at Brigham Young University, he was being restricted in what he could do and what he couldn't say and the way he behaved. He came to the Chicago Bears with a cold beer, and then that was it. Game over. Everything went back to strict, can't do this, can't do that, under Ditka and George Hallis. Unbelievable. Astonishing. And you know the thing is, I'm sat here giggling to myself because he's looking forward to it. He's got no idea how much I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> he's, got, he's got no idea. Has he? No idea. No idea whatsoever. But uh, this is going to be a lot of fun, Darren, because I think we're going to find ourselves reverting back to our teenage years and asking. I, I, I guarantee we do an in-depth interview and then we ask some mad questions that 13-year-old Darren Fletcher, 13-year-old Vernon Kay wanted to know from the 85 Bears. I guarantee it because it always happens. Be like, honest. I re remember, remember when... Uh, we talk about Ray Lewis a lot. And, I, and yeah. there's one thing that that uh, really stands in my mind when I, I spent a day and an evening and a night time and then a morning uh, out and about with Ray Lewis. The one question that I regret asking him was, why do you have that face cage, Ray? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're, we're not going to do any of that today. No. The question could be worse. Nerd question. Stupid yeah. question. So, listen, for people who are listening to this who maybe are an NFL fan from, from, from later than us, the 85 Bears went 15-1 and in the regular season. They then shut out the Giants and the Rams in successive rounds of the playoffs in the snow at Soldier Field in the second game where the defence was off the scale. And they went on to win Super Bowl twenty by what was a record margin of victory at that time, 46-10 in the Superdome in New Orleans. Richard Dent was the MVP. Jim McMahon probably should have been when you look at his, his contribution that day. It was the only Super Bowl that the 85 Bears team were able to win. Yet still, when they do programmes about this in the US, they are widely regarded as the greatest single-season team in the history of the league. Five of the players from the, the 85 Bears are Hall of Famers. The head coach, Mike Ditka, is a Hall of Famer too from his playing days as a tight end with Chicago. And they basically were a team that took over America and they pretty much took over large parts of the UK as well. They were a cast of characters. They were controversial. They were brash. They were physical. They were tough. They were funny. They were outspoken. They, um, they, had, they advertised everything. They lost one game all season to Miami, yet the following morning still recorded the Super Bowl shuffle with three or four weeks of the regular season plus the playoffs to go. They basically transcended the sport in the US and they basically put the sport on the map in this country. So they are an iconic, extremely significant team. He was an extremely large part of that when you think about the refrigerator and Walter Payton and the defence and all that kind of thing. McMahon was the one that kind of transcended all of that with his character. So we're talking about a man that would really resonate with a lot of UK fans. But if you're slightly later to the game than that, if, you, if you're a younger watcher of the NFL, just take the time to go back and read up a little bit about that team if you don't really know a great deal about them already because they were such a fascinating bunch, weren't they, Vern? Yeah, they really were. Like you said, a full cast of characters and the defence made its name with two of its stars, 
holding out in the 85 season. They never played a game in the 85 season because they could have been one of the most iconic defences in NFL history. And there's another thing about Jim McMahon. People people forget that he did bounce around after the Chicago Bears. He played at the, at the Chargers, the Eagles, the Vikings, the Green Bay Packers, won a Super Bowl being Brett Favre's backup quarterback. So he's won two Super Bowls, he's got two Super Bowl rings. But also, he, uh, he was also the first batch of players to enter official free agency. Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, he kind of ticks a lot of boxes here. Um, and we're really excited to talk to talk to him today. I've been taking the time while we're in lockdown here to watch the whole of the 85 Bears season in full. Because <laughs> we only got 10-minute highlights, didn't we, on Channel 4? Yeah. So I kind of watched them from week one. I'm in week nine at the minute. They're 8 no, And they're in Lambeau Field against Green Bay at the minute. One of the most physical NFL games I've ever seen. We had a player ejected for running Walter Payton through the benches inside the first five minutes. Late hits all over the place, fights all over the place. You'd never get away with it today. They'd shut the game down if they did anything like this now. But it's fascinating taking a look at that team. And you start to see, when you think about the mythology of the 85 Bears and you hear about the characters, when you actually see them play for 60 minutes at a time, they were an awesome group of players, physically, speed-wise, emotionally, they were winners. And it was one of those seasons where everything fell into place. You know, you wouldn't have had anything else. You talk about the two players who held out. Their names were Todd Bell, who was an all-pro safety, strong safety, and Al Harris, who was an outside linebacker. And they both missed the season because they held out. The Bears at that time were very frugal with the salaries. But the two players who came in to replace them, Wilbur Marshall, who was a second-year linebacker uh, for the Bears, and Dave Dewison, who played in Todd Bell's position, they were both pro bowlers that year. So the two backups who came in went to the pro bowl. And of course, Wilbur Marshall went on to win another Super Bowl with the Washington Redskins. I think Dave Dewison picked one up with the New York Giants. But the majority of that Bears team only picked up a ring for Super Bowl 20, which when you think about the talent, uh, how they played, the kind of team that they were, it's astonishing really that they only managed to get to the big game once as a group. And I'm fascinated to ask Jim about that, whether he thinks they should have um, won more Super Bowls, certainly been in more Super Bowls, and whether he thinks that, to a large extent, a lot of talent on that Bears team was wasted to a certain extent. Yeah, or, or I wonder whether, you know, the NFL comes in, in peaks and troughs. I mean, if you put the Patriots to one side, no other team really. You could say the 49ers and the Cowboys, and then you could go to the 70s and say the Steelers. <laughs> But there's not many teams in Monday NFL that really do put together a legacy, a dynasty. And I think, uh, I bet Jim McMahon really does think about that team and what it could have achieved on a regular basis. But we'll find out. These are the questions that we're going to ask him. We will. And just before we wrap it up and we speak to the man himself, let's not forget to ask him about the Thursday nights out with the linemen in Chicago. Because he is the quarterback, used to go out on the lash with the linemen every Thursday without fail when these guys are some of the biggest names in America, let alone the biggest names in Chicago. And rumour has it that sometimes they turn up to practice pretty much straight from whichever bar they'd been in that night. So <laughs> it never seemed to slow them down. So let's not forget to ask him about that while he's on. I like, I like their style. I like that. that long may that continue. Uh, all right. So uh, let's welcome Mr. Jim McMahon. How are you guys doing? Yeah, we're really good. Thank you, Jim. And obviously, this is a, a very strange time globally for everyone with the pandemic taking over. How have you guys taken it? Are, are you isolated? Have you settled down? Is everything OK over there in Arizona? Yeah, we've been pretty much uh, hunkered down at home uh, the last couple of weeks. we getting a lot of yard work done, a lot of stuff around the house, getting fat because I'm eating too much. But other than that, <laughs> everything's good. The worst thing about it, Jim, uh, being a fellow golfer, is we can't get on the golf courses. It's going to affect our game. Well, my game has, has been affected somehow anyway. I don't know what, where it went, but I lost it, and it's uh, it's not fun anymore. <laughs> we had a message this week, Jim, from Brian Baldinger, who said, first of all, send, send Jim and family all our love. And he said the way to get him interested in all this is to talk about golf. And I, I realized the other day that, that – just how much you enjoy your golf, but you tend to play without shoes. When did you start doing that? I started playing in the summertime, and I don't really, I don't like wearing shoes anyway, but I, I just love walking around on the grass. I think it helps my swing because I don't swing, I can't overswing without shoes, then you'll fall down. 
so my my tempo is a lot better and and i don't have those really white feet which aren't really good looking <laughs> let's, let's, try that, Jim. <laughs> yeah that, that, that's not a bad idea we want to talk about the the super bowl season the chicago bears and all that kind of thing because that really resonates with everybody over here in the uk but i almost want to start slightly after that and talk about that summer of 86 when you came over and the bears came to play the cowboys in the american bowl at wembley the old wembley stadium and you guys pretty much took the uk by storm back then did you realize just how popular you and the team were until you came over to play in london no not really not at the time uh you know we were we were pretty much a big deal here in the States, but uh, we didn't really know that uh, we had traveled that well. And then when you when you came and you saw what it was like, were, were you surprised? No, it was actually a lot of fun. I had a great time over there. The people were great. Uh, I remember going to quite a few of the, the parties they had for us, and uh, we got to see quite a bit of London, and uh, everybody had, actually had a great time. I, saw I still don't remember the game. Did yeah. we even win the game? I don't remember. Yeah, you won the game. You definitely won the game. Dave Dewison interception really early in the game, and you kind of took it from there. You did the Abbey Road walk as well, didn't you, over the Zebra Crossing? Correct. We did a re remake of the Abbey Road uh, picture, and uh, I still have it here hanging up in my house. It looks good. Oh, that's brilliant. That's fantastic. So let's start then with your arrival in Chicago. You were drafted round one, fifth pick, 1982. What was your first kind of what was your first perception uh, what did you feel about chicago well i really didn't know anything about chicago um other than the fact that my parents met in chicago they were both in the army back then during the korean war my older brother was born in chicago but that's about all i really knew about the city uh at the time everybody told me i was going to be going to the baltimore Colts. we were drafting they had the fourth pick of the first round and so um they ended up passing on me because my agent told them not to sign me or draft me because they couldn't sign. The, they had a running back at the time that they were trying to sign, and they couldn't get him signed. So my agent said, don't even draft me because you'll never sign me. And that's how I ended up going to the Bears, who had the next pick. I was I was all set to go to Baltimore, and then all of a sudden now I'm in Chicago. So it was it was kind of strange. So what was the feeling then when, when, when you become a Chicago Bear? Because this was a team that hadn't had a quarterback for quite some time. And we, we, we kind of read all about the stories about George Hallis not necessarily wanting to pay too many people, uh, despite the fact that he was one of the founding fathers of the NFL. He seemed to know that the value of a dollar. Um, so, so what was it like when you first got there and, and, and kind of settled down to work out a contract and become a bear? I, I flew to Chicago right after I got drafted. So I took about a three, three hour flight from Utah to Chicago. They had their... They're, actually, their film, the guy who, who took all the, the film for the games in practice, they sent him to pick me up. And so we're sitting in the limo. We had a, about a 40-minute drive to Lake Forest where, we're, where their facility was. I was going to meet Coach Dick and, and, um, and George Hallis. And so when I first got there, I got out of the limousine and I had a beer in my hand because they had, they had beer in the limo. And I just, I've been on a, I just had a four-hour, you know, three-hour flight and an hour drive, so I was a little thirsty. <laughs> so I had a couple beers in the limo, and then I, I got I got out of the limo. I still had the beer can, and then the press made a big stink about that, showing up with a beer right, you know, right when you drafted. <laughs> I went into I went in to meet Coach Hallis or George Hallis, and I was just sitting outside of his office, looking at the secretary for it had to be 30, 45 minutes not doing anything. And I finally said, Hey, you know, why am I here? And they said, well, Mr. Hallis would like to speak with you. And I said, that's great. But you know, I've got things to do. I had some friends that, that were on the bears at the time. They wanted to take me out to celebrate. And I, I, and I'm just sitting here in this office. And I said, can I, can I go? And she says, no, he has to, he wants to see you. And I said, well, what is he doing? And he, she said, he's taking a nap. So I had to sit there and wait for him. So he woke up from a nap. And then, and then as I came into the room, I sit down and he starts telling me that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too short. My arm is suspect. I don't see very well. Maybe I should go to Canada. Those were his first words to me. And I wow. said, why did you even? Yeah, that's what I said. I go, why did you even draft me? I said, who's in your scouting department? 
And then he already had he already had a contract there, and I'd just been drafted four or five hours earlier, and he had a contract, and he said, "This is the most money I've ever offered a rookie, this and that." And at the time, if you remember, the other league that was starting up in the in the states was the U- United States Football League, the USFL. Yeah, that came in the same year that I got drafted. So I knew I had a I had another meeting with George Allen. He used to coach the Washington Redskins. And he was going to be coaching the Chicago Blitz team for the USFL. And I knew I had a meeting with him, you know, in a, in a couple of days. So I looked at the contract that Hallis had given me, and it was really, really nothing. And so I just wadded it up and threw it at him. I said, I'm not signing this, and I walked out. <laughs> wow. So then I went to meet with George Allen a couple of days later. He offered me a great contract. And I said, look, George, uh, if you put this down in writing, I'll sign it, and I'll play for you. But I have I have about I had about a week or two weeks before they had a deadline that year that they said if you didn't sign before July 15th that you were ineligible to play the, the that season. So I ended up signing July 15th, and that's when I knew the NFL was kind of screwed up because Marcus Allen and Darren Nelson, both running backs, one from USC, one from Stanford, they didn't sign until August, and they got to play that year. So I, that's when I knew the NFL was just, you know they just kind of play favorites. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's how my that's how my introduction to Chicago went. Wow. wow. So wow. so you've got George Hallis, who's got very deep pockets and short arms, and then you've got a head coach in Mike Ditka, who well, you tell us, Jim, what was it like your first face to face meeting with Coach Ditka? Well, I still had the beer in my head, so we just kind of laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> So he said he didn't. He didn't think I was trying to make any good impressions to anybody. So he was, you know, he was all right with it. He liked to drink at the time, so it wasn't a big deal. I don't think. But what was he like to play for? Because you obviously came from an, an offensive Brigham Young, where you threw the ball a lot. You you set so many NCAA records for passing while you were there, and then you get drafted by a team that historically runs the football and plays defense. And, and from whenever you see the footage. There was always seemingly that constant battle between you and him where you wanted the playbook to be a lot more creative than he clearly did. And you felt that you could move the ball better if you passed the ball a little bit more. And that seemed to go against everything that Mike Dick had felt at that time. Well, he was, you know, he's an old school coach. You know, he come from a Tom Landry team that, you know, they everything's regimented. They, they run the football, play defense. But like you said, I had just played in an offense in college. It was, it's the best offense that I'd ever played in. You know, that counts as seven pro team that I was on. You know, we, we threw the ball. We, you know, it's a lot easier to throw the ball if everybody knows what they're doing. And it's a lot easier to gain yards and put up points. And I was, I was extremely bored for the seven years I was in Chicago as far as the offense is concerned because it was, it was really, uh, it was so basic, and everybody knew we were going to run the ball, so it was it was pretty tough on our offense. That's why I think our offensive line doesn't get the credit that they deserve, because you know everybody knew we were going to run the football, and so they would stack the line of scrimmage, and we were still able to to lead the league in rushing four straight years, which is, was never done before or since uh, that happened. So, and those guys just don't get the credit that they deserve. They were they they were great great linemen. I was looking at that because I think there are five players from that team in the Hall of Fame. Jim Covert, the left tackle, went in this year, didn't he, when they expanded the numbers that they were going to have in the Hall of Fame. But I always think the one that, that deserves to be in there for his exceptional play for so many years was the centre, Jay Hilgenberg, who seems to get overlooked. And you look at some of the linemen who are in the, the Hall of Fame, and he deserves to be there, surely. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I think our right tackle has a, has a good chance, Keith Van Horn. Jay Hildenberg, like you mentioned, you know, he was, he was, um, I think he was all, you know, pro bowl 12 straight years or something like that. Uh, our left guard, Mark Bortz, who was actually a, a converted defensive lineman. I thought he was a hell of a player. I mean, so, so with, the only guy that we had from the offense on that team in the hall was Walter up until this year. And they talk about that team being one of the best ever, and yet only one guy on the offense is in the all fame. I think that's a, that's a travesty. Yeah. yeah you that. talk about your, your relationship with the linemen. And am I right in saying that Thursday nights in Chicago was a ritual, that you went out, the linemen went out, I, whether you picked up the check or you, you shared the check on a, on a rotation basis, 
but those Thursday nights were legendary, weren't they? Oh, we uh, we had some we had some really good times on Thursday night. <laughs> it, it started out it started out with just myself and the offensive lineman. We'd go out every week uh, on Thursday, and whoever's who's ever turned to pay, they could pick the place to go. And so uh, we took turns. Everybody got a turn to, to pay and take the take each of the restaurant that they liked. And then after that, we'd go out and have a few drinks and and uh, uh, Friday practices. Dick had heard Dick, Dick heard about the Thursday night uh, fun that we were having. So our Friday practices were pretty brutal. He took it out on took it took it out on us on Friday mornings because he knew we he'd been out late Thursday night. So Jim, the majority of your arguments with Coach Dicker were they about the offense and the way that it was run, because it, obviously it's well documented your relationship with him uh, through your years in Chicago. Is that what you guys uh, butted heads about the offense? For the most part, that was that was it. You know, he was he would send in plays, and uh, sometimes I'd call him, sometimes I wouldn't. I would just uh, <laughs> depending on the situation. You know, he liked to he liked to be in control of everything. And I would I would explain to him, I said, look, you know, when they've got eight or nine guys at the line of scrimmage, you can't run the football. And it's so, you know, we got Willie Gall, who's the fastest guy in the league for I don't know how many years. We've got that kind of speed outside. We should be using it more. And so, uh, you know, he would just get quite upset if I changed the play. And especially if it worked, he'd really get mad. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Tim, let me, let, me, let me take you back to Thursday nights, because I don't think we spent enough time on Thursday nights. What, what kind of places did you go to? And, and by the end of that season, I presume the whole of Chicago was out on the Thursday night as well, were they? Well, like I said, it depending on it depended on who was who was buying that night and where we where we would eat. Sometimes it would be downtown Chicago. Sometimes it would be up in the north suburbs. Uh, it just it just depended. And then after dinner, that also depended. So if we ate dinner downtown, then we'd probably hang out downtown and go to a go to a bar or two down there. And it was up north, the same same thing. But it was just, uh, you know, we would just go out and just blow off steam. And then uh, we all knew that on Friday morning we were going we to pay the price, but uh, we were having too much. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. So tell us about the atmosphere uh, in camp pre-85, Jim. What was, what was it like? Were people confident? Was Buddy Ryan confident with his defense and Dick confident with his offense? Uh, yeah, we were very confident in 85 because uh, – 1984, we had a chance. We went to the NFC Championship game in 1984. You know, we yeah. we started getting, we started kind of gelling the last, the latter part of 1983. I think we won six or seven of the last game, eight games to, to finish eight and eight in '83. So then in '84, we really thought we had a good chance, and we did. I mean, we were we had a good football team. Uh, I think it, we were seven and two. I think at the time that that I got injured, I, I, I uh, tore half my kidney off in a game. So I missed the, the, the last part of 1984. We still ended up going to the NFC Championship game. And so, so coming into the uh, camp in 85, we were all very confident. And we all just had one, one goal, and that was to win it all. And Because uh, we knew from the year before how good we were. The other teams in the league started realizing how good we were. And then in 85, everything just kind of fell into place. You mentioned the kidney injury there, Jim. That was against the Raiders, wasn't it, back in 1984? Was that the most physical game you played in? I'll tell you, that was a brutal football game. You know, we knocked out, I think, two of their quarterbacks. They knocked me out. And they had won the Super Bowl the year before. So they, they were a good football team. And we, we just kind of manhandled them. And uh, But they got they got to me on one play, and that ended my season. And... Uh, but it, it eventually it healed up, and I was I was back in camp in '85, so everything was good. Vernon said there about the confidence you had. I presume offensively, you you were made more confident, weren't you, by the fact that you practiced against that defense? I suppose the most difficult defense that you ever played against was the team that you practiced against. Oh yeah, we we would play. We had three games a week usually because Wednesday and Thursday, back then every you wore pads every day, everything. All of our drills were live drills. We didn't have any, you know, buddy buddy drills because they, you know, our defense was proud and our offensive line was proud as well. So there was a lot of fights in practice. Uh, our practices lasted about three three and a half hours because of all the fights that we had. 
<laughs> so on, you know, we couldn't wait to get to Sunday. Sunday was almost like a day off for us because it was, we weren't playing against those guys. What was it like walking into Soldier Field in 85, Jim? What was the atmosphere like? Because obviously the Astrid Surf and the whole stadium became an iconic place in itself, especially here in the UK. Everyone wanted to go and visit Soldier Field. Yeah, we, we had, uh, it was always tough to get a ticket back then, that's for sure. But uh, playing in that playing that stadium on that AstroTurf was not real fun, especially when it got into December and January. Because it, you know, it's like playing in the street. That ground was so hard and so cold, and uh, it wasn't a lot of fun. I, I was not. I'm not a cold weather person. I grew up in California. You know, 50 <laughs> degrees used to be cold to me. And then to uh, to come to Chicago where it'd be 50 below zero. I mean, that was that's not uh, my kind of fun. I like the I like the 80 degree days. You talked about the style of offense, and in an ideal world, you'd like to pass the ball a little bit more. But I suppose when you have a player such as Walter Payton to hand the ball off to, that must be great for a quarterback. And when you when you think about all the players that you played with down the years, is he the one that you would put on the pedestal as being the all-time great, the greatest that you were privileged to play with, Jim? Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Walter was... Uh... He was an exceptional talent, very quiet, you know, never said anything in the huddle, uh, never said, give me the ball, never, you know, he just, he was a, he was a player. I mean, he just, he did his job without any fanfare. And uh, it was amazing to watch, especially early on in 82 and 83, when our offensive line was terrible. I used to hand him, I hand him the ball and just watch him do some incredible things. He'd run 30 yards a game, maybe one or two yards. I mean, he just did not like to be tackled, and uh, he never ran out of bounds. He he, he looked for somebody to hit. Uh, he was he's the strongest guy I've ever played with. He was probably about five ten, two hundred and eight pounds of just solid rock, and uh, just he could do it all. He could run, he could throw, he could kick the ball. He, he was just a lot of fun to be around. Was he there on Thursdays, Jim? That's the big question. No, he had his own thing going on. <laughs> him and the running backs i think they they got together the funny funny part about those thursday nights is towards the end of the season we didn't have just offensive linemen and, and me we had we had running backs we had tight ends we had some defensive guys would show up because they, they'd all hear you know how much money we had so they wanted to join in so we'd have a whole bunch of people at these different restaurants and bars every Thursday. So I think the town enjoyed us being out as well. Was that a big secret for your group? Because whenever you, you look back on that team and you, you see the players, there seems to be a tremendous amount of togetherness. We always hear about the feud between Buddy Ryan and Mike Ditka. But from a playing standpoint, you all seem to be totally involved and totally enjoying the situation. Well, I think as players, you know, we... You know, we enjoyed each other. I mean, I'm, I'm sure not everybody got along all the time, but I think we everybody had a lot of respect for everybody else. Uh, we certainly had a lot of respect for the defense, and I think they had a lot of respect for us because, you know, I don't remember our offensive linemen ever losing any fights. We hit some pretty tough, honorary guys. So, uh, yeah, we had a lot of respect. And, uh, you know, come Sunday, we were going to play for each other no matter what. You might not know this. 85, 86, headbands all of a sudden became really popular with people of a certain age in the UK. Anybody who played American football at the time or turned up for, for PE at school had a headband of some description, which was basically your fault. Why the, why the headbands? Because all the way through that season, you wore the Adidas headband but didn't get fined until the playoffs. Was there a reason why you wore it? Did you wear it because it was simply there to advertise Adidas and and? Did you ever think that that headband would become kind of your your trademark, so to speak? Well, no. Actually, I started wearing a headband back in college. And the only reason I started wearing it is because when you take your helmet off and on as much as you do, especially during training camp, it just takes the skin off your head. You should see guys' foreheads during training camp. They're just, they're just raw. And I started wearing the headband just to keep skin on my forehead. And then it became... You know, it became a, a big deal because, like you said, I'd worn that headband all year long and did not get fined. 
And then in the playoffs, they made a big deal out of it because they said I was giving uh, Adidas free advertising. And I said, I'm not the one giving them free advertising. You are. You're the one zooming in on my headband, on my shoes. <laughs> on my <laughs> Why is it a big deal now? And it wasn't a big deal for, you know, uh, 16 weeks during the season. And so they, they made a big stink. They actually fined me during the first playoff game uh, in 85. They fined me $5,000 for wearing a headband. Wow. And, uh, and so they were going to find me a, a bigger chunk the next week. And that's when I put Roselle on there. I didn't get a fine for that one. I actually, <laughs> he actually, uh, Pete actually called me and said, thank you for the free advertising. But he said, you, you can't wear that in the Super Bowl, he was telling me. But those two weeks between the NFC Championship game and the Super Bowl, I got a hold of the rule book somehow. And I was going through it, and, and there was nothing in that rule book that says I couldn't wear that headband. And so... I decided not to wear the Adidas one, but I decided to wear charities during the Super Bowl. Every every headband I had on was, was some sort of charity. I think I believe I started with the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, and then every series I would switch to a different charity. So I figured if they find me for wearing charities, they're going to look like real idiots. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> but I did, I did still wear the Adidas headband, but I had it around my neck. All, That's right. All during the pregame. All during the pregame warm-up, the head referee was chasing me around saying, hey, I cannot let you in the game with that on. And I said, yeah, I know. And then right, they had the uh, the, the national anthem. Everybody's lined up. Walter Payton stand there, myself, the head referee standing right next to me. As soon as the anthem was over, he grabbed me and said, I can't let you on the field with that uh, headband on. And I looked at him and I said, I know, but you can't do anything about this. And I pulled it down around my neck. You can see it clearly in every picture. <laughs> and he just started laughing at me. And he goes, yeah, you're right. And then I put the, uh, I put the uh, charities on my head. And I had the Adidas around my neck. And so I got I got paid from Adidas. I didn't get fined from the league. And I, and I said, Pete, you made a big stink about this. And now you look like idiots. But that's that's how that headband thing worked, uh, worked out. That's a that's a great story. That's a fantastic story. And of course, you mentioned there that you wore all of the headbands for the charities, which was a fantastic way to to raise awareness for a lot of excellent causes during the course of that three and a half hours in in New Orleans. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, I had, I got a lot of great uh, response from all the headbands that I wore, especially the POW, MIA, um, and then at the end, I had uh, I had Pluto on. And that's right. Thought that, you know. I'd lost the planet, you know, left the planet. But uh, <laughs> Pluto was a nickname for a, uh, a teammate of mine who was actually came to the Bears in 83. He was a teammate of mine at, uh, at BYU. He was a great wide receiver. And he was actually in camp with the Bears in 1983 when they found his brain tumor. And uh, he had just gone through uh, two operations just before the Super Bowl. And so I put that on there just to let him know I was thinking about him. And, you know, everybody made, you know, big fun about it. But I said, you know, it didn't matter what they were thinking. I, I said, I know Pluto knows what it, what it means. And everybody that we played with together at BYU knows what it means. So uh, that's how that Super Bowl ended. That's cool. That's really cool. And a nice tribute to your friend as well, obviously, in a Super Bowl. In a victorious Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, Jim, let me ask you this. If we were to go into your Arizona home and walk around, do you have, you mentioned you've got a couple of photographs from the 85 season, but is there anything apart from the Super Bowl ring that you cherish from that period that you have either on a pedestal, on the mantelpiece, uh, in your dressing room? Is there anything uh, from that year that you cherish? Uh, well, we do have a replica of the Super Bowl trophy. I've got one of those. I've also got one from the Packers, so that looks pretty good too. The only the only other thing that I have from that season is is the shoes that I wore in the Super Bowl. I had those bronzed, and those those are in my office. That's about the only thing that uh, from that season. I, I've got That's a lot of pictures and, and and stuff like that in closets and boxes and stuff like that. But uh, out in the office, no, it's just a couple of trophies, and then uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. What was Super Bowl week like in? In New Orleans, Jim, because I, I gather the Patriots went about things 
one way and the Bears went about things in another. You guys were the, were the team that tended to enjoy the week and be a lot more relaxed leading into the game. Hello, yes, we were very relaxed. <laughs> we were, uh, we had no curfew all week, so we saw the sun come up a few days, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> the week was going great. We got there on, I believe, Monday afternoon. And so Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, we saw the sun come up pretty much every one of those days. And then uh, on Thursday morning, I get woken up in my hotel room by an irate fan who's just screaming and yelling at me, saying, I'm going to get killed. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So I hung up. And then two minutes later, the phone rings again. It's somebody else screaming and yelling at me. And my roommate says, hey, what's going on? I said, I don't know, but people are upset at me for something. So I went down to the team breakfast that morning, and our general manager walked up to me, and he said, oh, you really did it this time. And then he walked away. I said, did what? What did I do? And I was still in the food line when Coach Ditka walked up to me, and he said, tell me you didn't say that on the radio. And I said, "I said, say what, Mike? I said, I, go, I got woken up this morning by a couple of fans. I said, Jerry's mad at me. I said, what, what, what did I supposedly do? And he said, did you do a radio show this morning calling all the women of New Orleans sluts? And I said, what? Are you out of your mind? I said, what time was this radio show? He said, six o'clock. I said, Mike, I didn't get back here till 530. I did not do a, a thing. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't know where they got it from, but I didn't say. It. So the rest of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they, we had women picketing the hotel. Um Nobody would stand by me at practice because we were out in kind of an open field. They thought I was going to get shot. So I had to wear a different number <laughs> at practice. And then, uh, you know, during, during the Super Bowl, I was just, you know, I've seen all those crazy movies like Black Sunday and, you know, if somebody's crazy enough to, to do something, they'll, they'll do it. They'll do it. So I was, I was so worried about being shot. I don't really remember a lot of the game. So that was in your mind during the game still. You, you'd still got that. By that point, it had not drifted away to the point where you could concentrate. There was still that fear in your mind that something could happen. No, there's no doubt. I mean, there's, there's some crazy people out there. They'll do a lot of weird stuff. I was, I was, yeah, I was scared for my, for my life, actually. You know, I, I called my wife um, that morning, that Thursday morning and told her what was going on. I said, I don't know if it's hit the news there yet, but, you know, I'm getting a bunch of flack down here for something I didn't do. So just letting you know, you know. And uh, it was it was pretty crazy the rest of that week. I mean, I, I had, up to that point, I had I'd done all the press conferences. I did all the stuff I was supposed to do. And then this came out, and I said, you know, I'm not talking to anybody else the rest of the week. And uh, I, I think I had one more press conference, and then that was it. I said, I'm not talking. Did you yeah. ever find out, Jim, where it came from? Uh, well, I, I know the guy's name that, that he was a reporter down in uh, New Orleans. He just went on the air without even confirming the story. He just said, well, it, it appears that uh, McMahon called all the women sluts. The men were stupid. The city sucks. I mean, he was just making up all this kind of stuff. I think he must have had a big bet on the, on the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was that kind of an insight into what it was like to be you at that time, because everything you seemed to do in 85 seemed to divide opinion one way or the other. Whatever you did, somebody had an opinion about what you should have done. It must have been quite tiring as, as the year went on. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, everybody everybody had an opinion. Uh, everybody does, which, you know, and they're entitled to that. But most of those people had never been around me. They don't know me. So, I mean, I don't... I've never worried about what other people thought of me uh, because they, they don't know me. If they know me, I think they'd have a different opinion. So I don't take a lot of stock in what, what other people think. That, that you have no, they have no business saying what they say. Yeah. Well, when, when you kind of think back to that period of time, the two playoff games in the Super Bowl, it was unprecedented, wasn't it? That you'd shut out the Giants and shut out the Rams and then you'd only conceded 10 in a 46-10 blowout to the Patriots in the Super Bowl. That was such a dominating three-game sequence, the like of which we, we, we'd not seen before and we've not really seen since. No, it was, like I said, we, we, were, we were coming into our own right then, that 85 season. Early on in the season, you know, I think our first two or three games, we were actually behind. 
uh, you know, our opening game, we're playing Tampa Bay, and Tampa Bay was notoriously bad. And they got us they're, – they're beating us by two touchdowns at halftime. And we ended up coming back. You know, our defense didn't, didn't really hit their stride until about the fourth or fifth week of the season. And then they were pretty damn good after that. But we had to save them early on. If it wasn't for the offense, who knows what would have, would have happened that year. Darren and I watched the uh, – Darren's up to week 10 of the 85 season, and I'm up to week four, Jim, of the 85 season. And it's interesting watching that first game against Tampa Bay where the first two series by the Bears' offense, everything is a run. I think there's one pass in nine plays, I think it is. Well, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's outrageous. It really is. It's crazy. And it's interesting that, you know, you're right in that the defense did take time to find its way under Buddy Ryan. When you realized the Buddy Ryan defensive scheme that he'd come up with, were you impressed personally as a quarterback because you were renowned for reading defenses as a quarterback? Well, Buddy's defense is all about pressure, pressuring the quarterback and knocking the quarterback out of the game. That was his, that was his philosophy. He would, say, he would tell the defense, I don't want this quarterback starting the second quarter. Because <laughs> back then you could actually take a few – steps and hit a guy after he threw the ball yeah and uh and so our defensive guys made sure that their starting quarterback did not make it through the game that was that was his deal but you know the if you can if you can block eight guys that's that's the key to beating that defense you have to we call it max protection you block everybody and you run two-man routes to two wide receivers because Buddy's guys are up there, they're playing man to man, those cornerbacks. And they have to chase those guys all over the field with no help in the middle of the field. So if you can just block eight guys for about two seconds, you can beat that defense. And I think uh, Joe Gibbs from the Washington Redskins, he was, I think, the first coach to kind of figure out how to beat Buddy's defense. They ended up beating us both in 86 and 87 in Chicago in the playoffs because Joe Gibbs had figured it out. Bearing in mind that they were so brutal against opposing quarterbacks, did that make it a bit more risky for you? Because I presume the opposition defense wanted to leave its mark on you if they could. Well, they were going to do that anyway. <laughs> That's right. Somebody <laughs> asked me that question after a game one time. Hey, do you feel sorry for their quarterbacks? I said, no. Nobody feels sorry for me when I get pounded. So, you know, I, I don't feel sorry for them. <laughs> I said, I get hit by these guys every day in practice. There's no... Uh, <clears throat> there's no love lost there. You mentioned there that you've got other things on your mind during Super Bowl 20, but when you look back on, on, on your performance that day, you must be extremely proud. You scored a couple of touchdowns on the ground and had it not been for a, a last-ditch tackle on Willie Gold, you might well have had a 99-yarder a in, in the second half, which probably would have made you the MVP as well. When, when you think back to that game, you must be extremely proud of everything. Well, I'm glad I didn't turn the football over. I mean, that's that's always a key for for me as a quarterback. I hated throwing interceptions, so it was nice to be able to, you know, I wish I could have thrown it about a yard further, like you said, in that, that uh, opening series of the second half. That would have been, I think it would have been a 96-yard. I think we're on the four-yard line. So, yeah, that would have been a record, and maybe, maybe that would have uh, helped those guys vote for me for the MVP. But <clears throat> I heard a story. I'm a press guy who's who's actually a friend of mine who was in the press box when they were all voting for the MVP of that game. And there was supposedly a very well-known writer. I, I don't know the guy's name, but he was running around that press box yelling to everybody, do not vote for him. Do not vote for him. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. I guess that pissed off too many of the, the press guys. Wow. Well, I mean, listen, I mean, I suppose you, it would have been nice, but I suppose you get the ring anyway. But when you hear things like that, it does put a lot into perspective. What did it feel like when the gun went off at the end and Buddy Ryan's on the shoulders of the defence, Mike Dick is on the shoulders of the offence? Some people are euphoric at that stage. Other people find it a little bit anticlimactic. A lot of boxers say when they become world champion, it doesn't quite feel what they expected it to feel like. What was the feeling like for you at the end of it? When, bearing in mind you've been so dominant all season, and then you've blown the Patriots away in the Super Bowl. Well, it was it was just like a big, big load off your shoulders. Uh, we we'd been so close for the previous year, and then to finally finally get it done. And then as soon as that as soon as that gun went off, 
I took off from the locker room. I didn't know if that gun was aimed at me. I did not stick around. I did not stick around for the, the festivities on the field. <laughs> I presume there was a decent celebration that night as well, in keeping with the rest of the season. Well, that's another funny one, because when we got back to the hotel, Mike McCaskey, the owner at the time, he was... Uh, he was having this big party. Supposedly, I thought it was for us. And when we we got down to the party, we didn't know anybody in the party. It was all McCaskey's friends and cronies. And so we ended up. I took one of the uh, the carts that had a bunch of beer on it and took it up to our, our floor. And we had there was probably 25, 30 guys sitting just sitting out in the hallway in the, in the hotel on our floor, just drinking beers by ourselves. That's like some college frat party. Yep, that's pretty much what it was because everybody said, we're not going wow. down there to that party. We'll just hang out here by ourselves, have some fun. And that's what we did. I got charged that I got charged for that cart of beer too. I can't even remember what they charged me. No, you didn't. I said, this, this, is the, this is the beer from the party. They go, yeah. And I said, well, we're going to have our own party. So they ended up charging me. I don't even know what it was. But it was probably three or 400 bucks. Well, I suppose that shows <laughs> yeah, that disconnect that year between the players and the management because it was a, a long-running theme, wasn't it? Players who weren't getting paid. I think Richard Dent was, was the obvious one during the season. Todd Bell and Al Harris held out, didn't they? There wasn't any love loss, really, between Michael McCaskey that you mentioned and that, and that group of players. Oh, there's none, none at all. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We over here being naive to the NFL as we were at that time. Just expected that that Bears team would just win the Super Bowl every year for the foreseeable future. I think it's always the big surprise to everybody that you only managed to win one with that group. Is, is, that, is that something that you think about? Is that something that bothers you? Is that something that you're kind of still trying to work out too? Well, it's, it was upsetting that we didn't win more. But, uh, you know, the following year, we went 15-1 and one and won the Super Bowl. The next year, we went 14-2. and two. I mean, it wasn't like we went away. We were still damn good. We just did not win at home in the playoffs. I mean, we uh, 86 is when I uh, had arm surgery. I hurt my I hurt my arm the first game of the year. Dislocated it. Uh, ended up trying to play another eight games. They just kept shooting it every week. And some some days I could I could go out and practice. Some days I couldn't move my arm, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. I was not getting the correct information from the doctors. He kept telling me there was nothing wrong with it. And I kept telling Doc, it's coming in and out of the socket every time I move my arm. And he says, no, it can't be. You know how painful that is? I said, yes, it happens 100 times a day. I know how painful it is. <laughs> and, and so I kept trying to play. I was getting some heat from a couple of defensive players about not practicing. And I kept saying, hey, man, there's something wrong with my arm. And then we finally had a uh, – uh, well, actually, that was when uh, Charles Martin slammed me down on my head. That was probably about week 10 or 12 after the play. And so I finally got a little time off. I went out to Los Angeles to see uh, Dr. Frank Job. He used to be the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers doctor. And uh, he told me within five minutes, he said, your arm's coming out of the socket. I said, I've been telling these guys that for 10 weeks. He says, you don't even have a labor. And so when uh, they scheduled my surgery, our team doctor flew out to see the surgery. And as soon as, Frank Job opened up my arm. He went, oh, my God. He said, there's nothing there. He said, that's no wonder he was complaining. So they 
they they finally knew there was actually something seriously wrong with my arm. And so uh, we finished that season. We lost the playoffs after being 14-2. and two. And then the following year, we had a strike, five games. We were out for five games. I think our record was 11-5 and five that year. And, again, we lost the first uh, division game or playoff game against the Washington Redskins again at home. So that, you know, we had four, four years in a row of home field advantage and we just didn't take advantage of that. And then 1988, we were 12 and four best record in the league. And we lose the NFC championship game at home. So it wasn't like we didn't have our chances. I mean, we, we still were a good football team. We just did not play well uh, in the playoffs the next three years. A lot of people say it was the best single season NFL team of all time. When you factor in the, the style of play, the way you won games, the talent on the roster, would you go along with that? Well, I would. I would line up against any team in history with those guys. So I mean, we were we were unique in that fact that it was a new defense, so people were having trouble with it, and we had the players to plug into that defense. See, Buddy Buddy ran that defense everywhere he was at. He ran it in Philadelphia. They had a pretty good defense there. But um, and then he tried to do it in in, uh, in Phoenix with the Cardinals when I, I came here with Buddy and the Cardinals in 1994. But he didn't have those players to plug into his defense. I mean, you got to have you got to have exceptional talent. Yeah. Just a couple, Jim, before we finish on on more um, up to date situations. Chicago have got Mitchell Trubisky, and now they've got Nick Foles. Why is it that that franchise finds it so difficult? to get a quarterback. I mean, we're kind of going back to your time. For the last time, you would say that they categorically have a quarterback that they can win with, that they believe in, that the city of Chicago can can resonate towards. Why is it that that franchise finds it so hard to find a quarterback? Well, I think it's just because of their history. Their their history has always been a tough defense and and run run the football, control the, you know, to control the ball on, on offense. And that's been, you know, historically all the way through until uh, after I left. And they got, uh, I think they had Eric Kramer came in for a couple of years uh, and they, they were throwing the ball all over the place. I said, where, where, when did this offense change? And then when they had Jay Cutler, they were throwing the ball. So I, I was the unfortunate one that had to run the ball all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but also, Jim, your, as your career progressed, you played with two other iconic quarterbacks in Brett Favre and Randall Cunningham. What were those guys like? Just give us an insight into to day-to-day life with, with two icons of game, including yourself. Well, it was, it was tough in Philadelphia. Randall, Randall was very, very talented. I mean, he could throw the ball over the stadium. I mean, he could kick the ball. He could run. But I don't think he understood what was happening on the defensive side of the ball. You know, he just – I asked him that one of my first questions to him when we were sitting in a meeting was, what what is your key – keys when you walk up to the line of scrimmage looking at the defense what what are you thinking about and he looked at me dead serious and he said you know what our offensive line is so bad because i'm just trying to figure out who's going to break free first so i can make a move on him and he was dead serious i mean he had no clue what was going on in the defensive secondary or or, or anything else basically he just thought he could take the ball run around and make a play and he did a lot of that but offensive football is not like that. You have to be precise. You have to. Everybody's got to do their job. And if everybody doesn't do their job, your play's not going to go anywhere. Whereas defensively, if somebody screws up their their assignment on defense, somebody can always save you. But offensively, if you miss an assignment, it's going to be uh, it's going to be well known. Brett Brett was uh, he just a country boy? Just just loves to have fun. Loves to wing wing the ball and. And tough guy, played I don't know how many games in a row. But, uh, yeah, he was just one of those guys that just, just loved to play. I mean, you still see him on commercials. He's out there playing with high school kids and stuff. So, I mean, he just, uh, he just enjoys being out there, being with the boys and, and uh, winning games. And do you think, Jim, that we're, we're moving to we, – we've got that changing of the guard at quarterback now. Tom Brady's left New England and gone to Tampa Bay. Patrick Mahomes was so impressive in the Super Bowl, the fourth quarter in particular – for Kansas City in February, um, do you think Mahomes is going to be the face of the NFL, and do you think this this move for Brady is going to be a successful one? 
Well, I definitely think Mahomes is the, is the, is the face of the NFL for now. I mean, he, the kid has uh, got great talent. Uh, I really didn't know a whole lot about him. I didn't even know his name, actually, for a couple, until a couple of years ago. I was actually in Kansas City. I was doing a function with our veterans. And uh, Andy Reid Andy Reed was my tackle in college, so I've known him since 78. And I asked him, I said, you just got rid of Alex Smith. You guys going to be okay? And he said, yeah, we got this kid, Mahomes. He's going to be, he's going to be really good. He's, he's, he's a special player. And obviously Andy knows his talent. So he made the right choice there. A kid, kid's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and Brady and Tampa, is that going to work? Well, again, that's, you're only as good as the guys up front and the guys around you. So if, if he's got an offensive line, he should be fine because if he doesn't, he's not, he's not very fleet of foot. So. If their offensive line cannot uh, hold up, I don't think he's going to be lasting there long. Jim, all we can say for joining us tonight is a, is a gigantic thank you. I mean, the one the one gap for the NFL fan is that with all these international series games, the Bears have been over a couple of times. We've never had the pleasure of you coming over to the United Kingdom. So this is the next best thing for us to be able to get you on the Fumble podcast. Lots and lots of Bears fans out there will love listening to the stories. And if they're not a Bears fan, There'll certainly be an NFL fan who goes to take a look back at that team from 1985. But if you do get the chance to come over and see us, take it because we'd love to see you over here. Yeah, they actually wanted me to come over last year. I think the Bears went over there last year, and I, I couldn't make that. But, uh, yeah, I look forward to coming back one of these days and have some fun playing a little golf out there and having a cold one. Well, listen, you've got yeah, an, open invitation, an open invitation. Jim, thank you so much. Okay, guys, have a great day. You're welcome. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's mad. Absolutely brilliant. That was fantastic. That was absolutely awesome. Really, really enjoyed it. And we got some insights there that you might not have necessarily heard before. I think we've seen more than a dozen documentaries on the 85 Bears. And there's a couple of stories that Jim told us there that I've never heard before. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't think for a minute he thought he was going to get shot during Super Bowl twenty. And That's I love unbelievable. The... I love the line when he said the minute the gun went off, he got out of there because he thought it might have been for him. <laughs> I, mean, what a, I mean, the thing is, what a character. And, and that just kind of sums him up. You, you, could, you could see his character oozing through the interview. And I, I thought he was fascinating. I, I thought he was great for value. It, it's, it would be great if the NFL UK office could get him over for one of the international series games. If the Bears come back again, you know, I think he'd be. I think he'd be perfect, wouldn't he, to come over and be involved in in all the stuff they do around the game. Yeah, he, he would absolutely love it, wouldn't he? He really would, and and we would love him too to come over because, like you say, I think for us uh, in the UK, he is more iconic than other players who've achieved more. But yet, it's Jim McMahon from the '85 Bears when football in the UK was just a little. A little seed about to sprout into a big, strong oak. <laughs> it was. Very, very nicely put. Very nicely put, if you don't mind me saying so. I'm delighted as well that he's still got the Abbey Road photograph in the office. And what a great idea to get the shoes put into bronze from Super Bowl Twenty. Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Darren, thank you for sorting that. I think it's my turn now. You've raised it the is. bar so high. It is. Uh, I think the only person that can top that is if we get an interview with Donald Trump. Well, I thought you might go Ronnie Locke because he's your fella, isn't he? Jim McMahon's mine and Ronnie... Right, well, I've got that. that's the challenge that is set. I will try and get Mr. Ronnie Locke onto the fumble. I'm going to send an email later tonight. Love it, love it. Hope you enjoyed it. And do bear with us on the, on the quality of the line, bearing in mind that I'm in Nottingham, Vernon's in his house, and Jim's in Arizona at 11 o'clock in the morning. So to try and pull it all together, Simon's done his best from a production standpoint. He's in his house in Blackheath. So we've got four different people in four different parts of the world at a really difficult time. But we just thought we'd take the opportunity to bring you half an hour, 40 minutes or so, with a, with a genuine NFL icon, uh, a genuine NFL legend, and a, and a player that's meant so much to you and I, Vernon, throughout our uh, NFL supporting days. Absolutely, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks again, Darren. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you to the Thumbelites, the regulars. If you're new to it, you know what to do. Subscribe, rate, and give us a comment. We appreciate that. As always, this is the Shooting Shark production. We will see you next time. Thanks, Darren. Cheers, man.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.